Well, good morning. I, I am the last person on the planet that can rebuke a man for forgetting something. <laughs> um, I tell people I've had Alzheimer's since I was 12 years old. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, let's bow together and let's pray and let's ask our God to prepare our hearts to worship Him in His Word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that, Lord, You have enabled us to gather together today. Lord, to worship You and adore You. To, Father, uh, Lord, hear You in Your Word And so, Father, today I pray that as we come to this most holy moment where worship continues as we hear and receive and respond to Your Word, as You equip us, as You help us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, Father, Lord, I pray that would be so. That, Lord, you would plant your word deep within our hearts today. Father, I pray that you would speak for me as we move into the next section of James chapter 1. That, Father, uh, Lord, you would open our eyes that we would see, unstop our ears that we would hear, loosen our stubborn wheels that we will rightly respond. Lord, it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me this morning to the book of James. Returning to James chapter 1. That's where we've been for three weeks, four weeks maybe. That's where we are this morning. So James chapter 1. And in just a moment, we're going to plant our feet in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 of James chapter 1. We are continuing under the theme of trials in James chapter 1. Now, so far, since we began in the first chapter of James... The trials that we have been dealing with and what James has been confronting us with have been those external trials. It's been those trials that come into our lives from without for the testing of our faith, for the proving of our faith, as James talks about, as James says. These are the uh, external trials, those hardships, those sufferings, those problems and outside predicaments that we walk through in life. And those trials, those trials are often orchestrated under the sovereign umbrella of God. He permits them to come into our lives. There is, as John says in 1 John, there is suffering that is according to the will of God. And they come not for our destruction, child of God. They come, Christian, they come for our good and His glory. Even though we don't like it in the process when they come. But they do. 
Well, today, in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 that we're going to read in a moment, they take a different direction. James takes a different direction. In these verses that we're going to read in just a minute, James begins to present us with a trial of a different kind. Rather than an external trial of faith, we're coming face to face with an internal, internal trial that tests our faith. The testing that comes here and what we're going to see this morning aims not only at destroying faith, but also disfiguring our character. The trial that is talked about here, I would suggest to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who is born of the Spirit of God, the trial that we're going to see this morning is the most ruthless and the most painful and brutal of all the trials that we face. And we face this trial daily, daily. As painful as external trials can be, and they can be painful. Remember Job. He went through some painful stuff, but they were primarily external trials. The pain, the trial that we're facing today is painful and especially painful if we fail in the midst of it. In the midst of it. So this morning, let's read together. In James chapter 1, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. And this morning, if you would permit me, I would hang as the title over this text, The Trial of Temptation. Let's read, beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Wow. James is moved by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. And he is writing with the utmost pastoral concern. He is concerned for those believers that are reading this letter that God has breathed upon His Spirit to write. He is is taking the time God is taking the time through James's pen to equip us and to educate us with understanding of temptation, sinful temptations, source and its strategy. When I step back and I look at this passage, James is somewhat acting like a good Baptist because as I observe this text, I see three, three main things that James is telling us. Now he's telling us a lot. In the midst of those three things. But when we look here, we see in verse 13, he reflects on the sound doctrine concerning, concerning God and sinful temptation. 
Because there are those, and James is addressing this, there are those then and there are those now that want to blame God for their sin and their temptations. Then he moves on into verse 14 and he reports on the true source of sinful temptations in our lives. And then in verse 15, he reveals the satanic strategy at work behind sinful temptations. Verse 15, matter of fact, is a very emphatic pastoral plea for us to be aware of how sinful temptations work so that we might avoid its deadly trap. Because oh, the pain that it can bring and the destruction that it can bring and the disfigurement that it can bring and the grief that it can bring and the grieving that it can bring to the Holy Spirit. Oh my, He is wanting us to avoid all of that and respond rightly to it and understand what is at work in the midst of it. Then verse 16 that I read, I, he gives a sobering warning, and it's a warning that goes with verses 13, 14, and 15. He's simply saying to the church, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't presume that you are immune to the deadly goal of temptation. So child of God, Let's unpack this this morning. And let's hear what the Spirit is saying in the midst of these verses. So number one, number one, James reflects on sound doctrine concerning God and sinful temptations. James reflects on sound doctrine concerning God and sinful temptations. So the first thing that James wants to be clear about is that God is not... Okay, let me, let me make this very clear. God is not responsible for our sinful temptations. He's not responsible for it. You see, the tendency of the human species is that when we succumb to temptation and we sin, we are quick to place blame elsewhere. It's what we do. That's how we are. That tendency goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to Genesis the third chapter. Matter of fact, don't take my word for it. Let's look in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see this. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning, I'm going to read this dialogue that takes place between God and Adam and Eve. And in verse 8, we read these words. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's amazing how sin will mess up the way you think. Let me just stop just a minute. I mean, how are you going to hide from God? Okay. You can't. 
Anyway, he goes on and says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Haven't, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then man said, Here it is. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So here it is. He's, he's, he's getting two, he's blaming two folks. He said, wait, wait, wait a minute, God. That woman, that woman that you gave me. So already, he's not taking responsibility for himself. And he's pointing the finger at Eve and at God. And so he goes on and he says, after that it says in verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, This serpent, he deceived me. And so they never point the finger inwardly. They always point the finger outwardly. And they are not taking responsibility for their own action and their own sin. And that's what you see happening in Genesis 3. And that is the human tendency. You can look out in our culture today and you see how that plays out. One of the big issues today in our society is we're going through mega shifts and our thinking about morality, which, by the way, never changes. Morality is eternal. What God says is right and wrong today will be right and wrong forever. You hear me? That doesn't change. But we live in a culture that is being impacted by the issue of homosexuality. And one of the biggest arguments that it comes out from the LGBTQXYZUV, I mean, let's just add another letter, okay? Is that I was born this way. Don't, don't tell me this is a sin. I didn't ask to have it. I was born this way. Now, a lot of times the church's reaction is they just don't know how to deal with that. They don't know how to deal with that. Once they say, you didn't born that, you, were, you chose that. Listen to me. Okay. I, let me. Listen to me now. It is not a problem if someone says they were born that way. Now listen to me. Genetics, biology does not eliminate moral responsibility. And, and what you need to think of, rather than just sit back saying, oh, they couldn't say I chose it. Listen, you need to think about it theologically. You need to think about it biblically. You need to think about it because it is a real issue. It is something that people are struggling with and we need to be able to address it. Do you understand? The Bible is quite clear. We are born in sin. 
You come into this world with a genetic code that is twisted and marred by the stain of Adam's sin. We are born with a nature that automatically runs from God and races from God and is an enemy of God. We are born with all kinds of sinful inclinations within us. They can, pr- they haven't yet, but you could prove, that's fine. You could prove there is a genetic predisposition to such and such sin. Okay, take alcoholism, take certain addictions. You can prove there are genetic conditions that put one predisposed to certain things. But that does not make it okay for an alcoholic to say, I'm going to spend my life drunk every day. So do you hear what I'm saying? My point is, is that everybody wants to point outwardly saying, it's not my fault. I was born this way. Listen, it's her fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. No, it is not. It is not. It is not. So, James gives two theological reasons why you can't blame anybody but yourself, but especially you can't blame God. He gives two theological reasons right here. He gives two theological reasons as to why God is not the author of sinful temptations. And the first theological reason he gives right there in verse number 13 is God Himself, God Himself cannot in any way whatsoever, He cannot be tempted by evil. That's what the text says. That is God's perfect word. No mistake there. God cannot be tempted by evil. God, Listen, God is infinitely pure and right and holy. You cannot tempt that which is perfect with imperfection. Because that's what sin is. It is imperfection. It is going against the, the very law of perfect. It... You can't tempt the most perfect being in all the universe with something less than He. And there's only, there's nothing greater than He. He is the greatest. He is all in all. Hallelujah. Now somebody that knows their Bible would say, now pastor, what, how how do you explain Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15? You see, I'm always thinking pastorally because I know somebody will read that and think, well, how do you reconcile Hebrews 4 and verse 15 with the message of James chapter 1? Now, some of you are sitting there saying, what in the world is Hebrews 4, (laughs) chapter 4 and verse 15? Well, let me show you what it says. Over in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Now, listen to these words. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now wait a minute. Now that's Jesus. The Bible says He's been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He has never sinned. He has never sinned. Do you hear me? Jesus has never sinned. He's perfect. 
But this Jesus that we read about in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, it's quite clear in Hebrews chapter 1 that he's God come in human flesh. Because we read in chapter 1 of Hebrews opens up in this way. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power that's jesus now how you reconcile that scott because over here in hebrews i mean in james chapter one he just said he just said let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil Elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> you must remember that there was a miracle that happened about 33 years prior to the cross. It's called the Incarnation. Yahweh God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was God of all eternity and had always been. The Son had always existed in the triune relationship of the Godhead. In Christ, when He became a man, the humanity of Christ did not pre-exist. The deity of Christ always existed. And for 33 years, He walked with a human body. The Bible calls Him the second Adam. In other words, He was to come and be what the first Adam failed to be. You see, the first Adam, and this is what really blows my mind, the first Adam and Eve, they did not have a sin nature. They had walked with God in the cool of the garden, and they still succumbed to deception. Everyone since then, we've been born in the image of Adam, which is starred with sin. But Christ did not have Adam's nature. Christ did not inherit a depraved nature. The depraved nature is passed along, and you can read this, you can study this, especially in the line and genealogy of Jesus. The, 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 the sinful nature is passed along and continues in the human race through the male. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Only Mary. And that which was conceived in her was by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He did not have a sin nature. And so when Jesus was tempted, Jesus was tempted in the way Adam would have been tempted before the fall of man. But Jesus, when he was tempted, he didn't succumb to temptation like the first Adam did. And he overcome. Thus he was worthy to go to the cross and become the spotless Lamb of God to take upon himself the sins of all who repent and believe. The deity of Christ was never tempted, but the humanity of Christ faced it. Therefore, I tell you, there is no contradiction. There is no contradiction between Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and James chapter 1 and verse number 13. They are both very much the Word of God. And when you go to the Word of God, you don't just read one verse here and one verse here. You have to understand them contextually and you have to understand what's going on in the context because, as I tell you repeatedly, context is King and rules when it comes to interpreting Scripture.
Now, he tells us that God himself cannot be tempted by evil. And the second theological reason he gives us for God not being responsible for sinful temptation is he says God himself cannot tempt anyone with evil. He can't. Because that would be evil. And God's not evil. And Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to even look on evil, much less to do evil. He, he does not. Now... The second thing here, we see James reflecting on sound doctrine concerning God and sinful temptations. second thing we see is James reports on the real source. The real source of sinful temptation. You see, in verse 14, he makes it clear that you, that we, are 100% responsible for temptation's evil pull. Let me read verse 14 for you. He says... But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. You see, we are 100% responsible for temptation's evil pull. Jesus clarifies this in the book of Mark, chapter number 7. Jesus said these words. He said, beginning in verse 20, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within And they defile a person. It it comes from without of you. Because of what you have genetically inherited from your great granddaddy to the tenth power called Adam. It comes out of you. Therefore, as Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, he tells us and talks to us about desires that wage war against our souls within us. And we are the source of it. Now, he gives us two theological reasons why we are 100% responsible. The first is, and I'm just clarifying some of what I've already said, the first is, Our depraved desires. The text says, by his own desire. By his own desire. You see, you cannot blame the tempter. Satan is the tempter. That is one of his names in Scripture. He was operating as the tempter in the Garden of Eden. But it is not his fault. He cannot be blamed for what you chose Now for us, post-fall of man, what happens is sometimes the enemy, the tempter, comes along. And sometimes certain things in our environment, you can't blame the environment, but certain things, they act like a magnet that pulls to the surface what is already within us and corrupt. And it comes from within us. Not 
from without. So they come. We are 100% responsible because of our own depraved desires. And our own second reason is our own deceitful desires. He says that we are, we are lured and enticed by them. Angie was just talking with me this week about how her dad would take her fishing. And I used to think about how my, my dad, my granddad, both of them would take me fishing. And the imagery there is, is sort of fishing imagery, if you think about it, lured away. You know, and you, you think about when you're really young, you're not, I didn't know how to throw a casting reel or anything like that. Didn't even, I hadn't even got up to a spinning reel yet. So we used a pole. What do you do? We put crickets on it or we'd put, uh, you know, huge worms on it, catawba worm, I, you know, whatever. And we'd sit it out there and I'd watch that little round floater out there. And then all of a sudden, you'd go down below the water. And I'd be like, ah, I've got a big fish. It wouldn't be probably this big. Well, how, how is that? Well, the fish saw the bait. It wasn't the bait's fault. It wasn't the Catawba worm's fault. It wasn't the cricket's fault that he was hooked and now being pulled into his demise. Soon to be in the belly of my stomach once he had been fried. It was not, the, it was, it, what was it? It was the fish's fault. He desired what he saw. He was lured and he was enticed. That's how these desires work. Wow. That's how they work. So James reflects on sound doctrine concerning God and sinful temptations. And number two, James reports on the real source of sinful temptations. Verse 14 and now verse 15, James reveals the diabolical strategy behind sinful temptations. And they unfold in about three phases right here. Phase one is this, to arouse sinful desires. To arouse deceitful desires. It's kind of like, you know, some desires are good and right, okay? So I, we'll just use the illustration of desires. When, when, when you're around smelling your favorite food cooking, you desire it. Taste it, don't you? I, I mean, you know, I... You desire, I, I love the smell of pork frying. Love my grandmother's pork chops. I love the smell of bacon frying. I love the smell of coffee. I could even stop and go back and talk about how I didn't choose to like those things. I was born with a genetic propensity for those things. But that's another issue. But it, the point is, I, I wanted, I wanted... Taste those things. I thought about it. I thought about it. And before, my goodness, the more I thought about it, you know what I would end up doing? I'm sneaking into the kitchen. And before anybody else tastes something, I'm going to get me a bite of something. And I'm going to try to make it look like I didn't do anything. <laughs> but that's how we, we get enticed. We get, it, it, it comes and they're, they're de these sinful desires, they are, they are, they are deceptive desires. 
And when you first have those desires, when you first become aware of those desires, that is when you are in the most critical point, the most critical phase. This is where you're going to win or lose the battle. It's right when they come up. This is why it is important as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse 5 that we have to take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. It's in that moment that we, we, when it's a sinful temptation, we take captive that thought and we bring it in submission to the authority of the truth. Say that really isn't what we want. Okay? And the scripture is full of truth to help curb the appetite. Okay? When it comes to sin. But it's a, it's, 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 it is a critical moment. It is in this moment that verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 are critical. You know this verse. Now you hear this verse misused a lot. Okay? But let me read this verse. He says, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, whatever you're dealing with, somebody else is dealing with it. Okay? You're not a weirdo or a freak. Somebody else is dealing with it. Okay? He goes on and he says, There's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then he says, God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now that's reality. And oh, how guilty we are of not walking through the exit door. Wow. You hear this verse misused a lot in this way. How many of you ever heard this statement? And, and I, if you've said it, I don't remember you saying it, but I'm sure some of you said it before. You've heard this statement. God will not put any more on me than I can bear. Where'd you read that? You didn't. That is talking about sinful temptation. Now listen to me. I would suggest to you, and I don't mean to mess up your theology today, but I would suggest to you that God delights in putting on us more than we can handle because when we face more than we can handle, guess what we have to do? We have to trust Him. And when we trust Him for things that are bigger than ourselves that we can't handle, God gets the glory. He gets the glory. And I say that not to discourage you, but to encourage you to know that there's nothing impossible with God. And no matter what you face, He is faithful. And He will supply you with the strength that you need. Child of God. But anyway, that's, that's just extra. I, I, this is talking about temptation. So phase one, these desires, they emerge. And if you do not... Take them captive in that moment. Then we move into phase two, which is sinful action. Let me just read to you the flow again of what's going on here in James in verse 15. He says, then desire. So here's where it starts. That desire that was phase one. When it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here we've addressed the desire, but desire, once it is conceived, it brings forth sin. So phase two is sinful action. Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 5, the mind... The, the, the mind of the sinful man is set to what that mind desires, the one who lives according to the flesh. It's where your mind is. And what happens is, is it first, that sin becomes sin first internally in the mind. Sin that you do became sin before you did it because it became sin here. In other words, it wasn't just a desire and a temptation. It's something you embraced. It's something you entertained. It's something you thought about how you can fulfill this. And you thought about how this could play out. And you embrace it. And you begin to want the very thing that you think. Now that is a very serious moment. Jesus addressed that. You know, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, taught and thought... That, you know what, as long as you weren't doing something in your act, action, that you were okay. That you were holy as long as you didn't do the thing that you were thinking, not realizing that they were quite unholy in their minds. That is why Jesus addresses the things that He addresses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. For example, let me just read you some examples. Jesus said, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. What they had heard, you know, who they had heard, they had heard the Pharisees teach them, they'd heard the teachers teach them, you don't do this, you don't commit murder. But Jesus went on and he said, But whosoever, because whoever murders is liable to the judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. You read over in 1 John, and John says that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Hmm. Wow. Jesus said, for example, down in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, He said, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Now, let me help you understand. He said, you look at her with lustful intent. Guys, and I'm going to speak to you men a minute. We are very visual people. More so than females. And God has beautiful creation. You're going to see people, you're going to think, wow, that's a beautiful person. You just say, praise God, that's a beautiful person. The problem comes when you begin to dwell on that beautiful person and then you begin to take it further than just seeing someone that's beautiful. That's where you begin to go down a wrong road. And I'm telling you, that'll bring much pain. That'll bring much pain. In your life, pain you don't want to walk back. You don't want to. You don't want to live through. You don't want to live through that. Now, so we see there's this phase one, this deceitful desire. You desire something. Phase two, if you don't deal with that, it becomes sinful action. And get this: if you don't ever deal with it. It will kill you spiritually. And I said that. James says that. Listen again to what he says in chapter 1. 
He says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death. Now that's not talking about any sin in particular, but sin in general. It will bring forth death. What does that mean? What is sin? What is sin fully grown? What is that? I, this is how I would define it to you. Sin that is fully grown is sin that is out of control. It is sin that you've made peace with. It's not a struggle in your life. You've embraced it. You've embraced it. You've embraced it. That's what it is. And yes, that kills eternally. It's not that if you make peace with it, you lost the salvation that you professed you had. My friend, if you come to this phase where sin is full grown, you never were born of God. Because he that is born of God cannot continue in sin. That is, you cannot, that sin is not something you can have as a lifestyle. You may struggle with things many times, but you cannot embrace it, make peace with it. You cannot justify it. Sin out of control leads to eternal death. I will show you this from the scriptures. And we're coming to a close, I promise. Um, but look at these passages. First, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. In verse 9, Paul is quite clear. And I remind you, this is the pure Word of God. This is not Paul's apostolic suggestion. This is not his round table of theology opinion. This is God's Word. This is what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not, he's, he's not using those sins in the sense that, oh, these are worse than other sins. He's addressing sins that were a problem in Corinth. He could have picked any list of sins. And what he's talking about are those that, this is who you've accepted, this is the way it is, and you've embraced it. This is your lifestyle. Because listen to what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. Oh, gosh, do you hear that? So he's not saying anybody guilty of those things could not inherit the kingdom of God because he goes right on and says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Okay? He's talking about those in their midst that they're keeping on. They're not, they're not struggling. They're not trying to defeat. They're not trying to crucify the flesh. They're not trying to get up and move on past something. They've just they've, they've, they've pitched a tent and they're living in it. Paul warns us again over in Galatians chapter number 5, beginning in verse 19. Paul says 
Beginning in, in verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Once again... Take it in context. He's not saying if you're guilty of any of those things, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. But he's saying those who do continually, those who embrace that, those who, this is their lifestyle. Those who have made peace with it. And then there's, there's Revelation chapter 21. Um, verse number 8. John there, writing the book of Revelation, says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and for murderers, and sexually immoral, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Wow. Sin out of control is a sign that you never have experienced regeneration and the new birth. We may struggle with many sins. We may fall many times. But we who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit must get up. And we must continue to fight. We must move on. That is what the gospel will motivate us to do. But those who say, I'm tired of fighting. I embrace my sin. This is who I am. Or who say, I know it's sin, but I'm not going to worry about it. God's got to forgive me. That is turning the grace of God into a license for immorality and sin. They're in a dangerous place. Because if they do not come to the end of themselves and repent, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, it's not that they were saved and lost their salvation. They never had it. They never had it. They never had it. Sin, when it is full grown, it kills eternally. Have you ever heard about how Eskimos kill wolves in Alaska? Have you ever heard that? I thought I may have shared that before. I don't know, but it's just, it's so true to the way sin is in our lives. What they will do is they will take a knife and they will coat it with an animal's blood. And then they will, they will freeze that blood around that knife or that dagger. And they will take that knife and they will go stick it into the ground. Here comes the wolves. They begin to lick that blood the warmth of their own tongue begins to melt that blood around that knife. And they continue to lick. And they continue to lick. And their bloodlust just gets out of control. And without them even knowing it, they are now craving the own, their own blood. And they continue to lick. And they continue to lick until they bleed to death and die. Sin is no different. I would close with... A real life example of this. You know, I, I've known many people in life and ministry over these years who have, 
who, who I have worked. I have, listen, I've had people I have worked and ministered beside. Been in revival with beside. They've been Sunday school teachers and they've done all kinds of stuff. I'm thinking of one individual right now who has renounced Orthodox Christianity and has embraced an alternative lifestyle. You may have heard of Lance Bass. That's not who that is, but Lance Bass. uh, He was baptized in, I think it was the First Baptist Church of Laurel, Mississippi. And uh, he has since renounced his faith and has embraced an alternative, and I say that in air quotes, lifestyle. If those individuals do not come to the end of themselves and repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, their profession of faith they made way back when when they were children was just a sham. It was just a sham. Wow. Guys, let's pray together. Father, we bow before You and thank You.